Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and I'm afraid this afternoon you'll be listening mostly to my voice. So I'm really hoping that this uh, afternoon we've got so much interesting material, and Ron is here to help me, that um, you'll keep listening. We're going to talk about the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal. We're going to talk about the uh, Democratic Socialists that's just won the New Hampshire primary. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, some material that I've got from one of our listeners who says that we really do want um, to look very carefully at our education departments and what is happening and also what is happening with our principals. Uh, We're also going to look at... Uh, what is happening in our press and the issues in the press. We just might mention Gonski along the way. Now, if you go to our website at www.adogs.info, you'll find that we've put up two press releases in the last week. One is press release 641, and you can read there how 78% of the Australian public believe that religion and the state should be separate. And this is work that has been done by the Rationalist Society of New South Wales. So we really do suggest that you go up and you have a look at that material. It's very, very revealing. Many people, most people, 78% of people in Australia think that we should keep religion out of politics And uh, that also reflects, of course, the fact that we should keep religion out of our state schools, that we should have public schools which are free for all and offensive to none. They should be open to all children. There's an awful lot of talk about uh, how we are losing our egalitarian society and how we are failing to integrate our Indigenous and our migrant communities in this country. Why? because we are rejecting our children at the school gate. Not in public schools, but in private schools, and we are funding these schools to do just that. Everybody this week is very, very upset that babies and children are being dragged out of our public schools and sent back to the Nauru Gulag. But in fact, we are allowing publicly funded schools in this country to reject children at the school gate. And that is just not good enough, certainly not if it is public funds that are involved. And that's why the dogs are here every week to promote public education. Now, there's another press release that's gone up, 642. And when you hear about it, you'll say, well, what's this got to do with education? But it has, we suspect... I can't tell you it definitely has because I haven't seen the document that's involved. But then nobody else has either. The Trans-Pacific Trade Deal. Is it, and we believe it is, another attempt to privatise public education in this country? Andrew Robb, who's the Liberal Party member for the Division of Goldstein in the House of Representatives, as well as the Minister for Trade and Investment, has announced his retirement from Parliament at the next election. He has been responsible for attempting to drag Australia into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. 
which may well have very deleterious effects on both all of those who are not sitting securely at the top of the US corporate pyramid. Rob has dragged our governments, not screaming, it's all been very quiet, and most of the terrible things do happen quietly, of course, into the TPP with the absolute minimum of transparency. Who knows what the TPP means, except that we do know it threatens national sovereignty and opens up our education and health systems to corporate governments and profiteering. Have we heard about this from an Australian? No. We've heard about it from the New Zealand Prime Minister, who's concerned about losing his sovereignty, the sovereignty of New Zealand. So if it's bad for New Zealand, I can't see how it's good for Australia. Now, in other words, privatisation is on the agenda of our nation's public future. And our children and our young people are involved in this because they are our future. Now, Republicans in Australia criticise a titular head in the United Kingdom, a lady who's got, in her 80s, who's got no power at all, or very little. But the real power and our national future is being negotiated with faceless profiteers in the centre of the United States Empire. After six years of secret negotiations, a 6,000-page text of the TPP was released on November the 5th, 2015. But this was still subject to legal scrubbing. And the scrub text was only released last week with not enough time to check it before the ceremony to just sign off on it was held in New Zealand on the 4th of February. However, there is time for our consideration. Our Parliament has got to vote on the ratification of this TPP. And for those of us who've been around, this all has the same smell as the WTO and the GATS. We've been here before and our politicians have rammed us into these agreements which have cut across our history of great public service bureaucracies and great public services for the ordinary person in this country. Now, the Australian public and even our parliamentarians have been kept in the, in the dark about all this. So what can we establish at this stage? So I've been looking around the place to find out what I can find out about this TPP and education. And I found a Dr Patricia Ranald, who's the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, uh, and she had a very interesting article not in The Age, but in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, and we do know, she says, that the United States corporate interests have been furiously lobbying to get last-minute changes to the TPP. And the United States 215 Senate report criticised this secret and undemocratic process and called it a blind agreement. Now, after many requests from our parliamentarians and others, we do know that the TPP text is likely to be tabled in the Australian Parliament soon and will be examined by parliamentary committees over several months before Parliament votes on the implementing legislation. But will we be able to have a look at it and how much in it has been redacted because it's commercial in confidence? We also know that the TPP will have almost no economic benefits for Australia because we already have free trade agreements with nine of the 12 Pacific Rim TPP countries. So what are we signing this for? Uh, Unless, of course, it's to please somebody, something, in the uh, United States. A World Bank study has estimated that it will result in a minuscule 0.7% increase in Australian GDP over 15 years. Now, President Obama has been a bit upfront about this. He said that the TPP allows the United States to, quote, write the rules for the region. But what benefits US corporate interests is not necessarily in the interests of the majority, either in the United States, let alone in other countries. We also know that the TPP gives foreign investors 
the right to sue governments over future public interest regulation. I'll read that again and think about what I'm reading and put it together with the fiascos in the TAFE sector with the private profiteers that have taken our young people for a ride. We know that the TPP gives foreign investors the right to sue governments over future public interest regulation and it's known as the Investor State Dispute Settlement. And the Trans-Canada Company announced in January that it is using the provisions of this, the ISDS, that's the Investor State Dispute Settlement Provisions in the North American Free Trade Agreement to sue the United States government for $15 billion because it decided not to proceed with a controversial Keystone Tar Sands pipeline for environmental reasons. So think about it. Transurban can sue our state government if it doesn't get the profits that it's promised or if the people revolt against paying the required fines. Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz argues that this investor-state dispute settlement procedure could be used to undermine regulation required to stabilise financial markets and undermine regulation to combat climate change pledged by governments in the long-awaited Paris Agreement. Listeners, it could also be used to take our state and federal governments to task if charter school companies, if companies come into this country, set up charter schools and then don't make the profits that they require or get the government funding that they demand. Now, the public health experts are very worried about this TPP And the Doctors Without Borders have shown that the TPP also extends and locks in monopoly rights for global pharmaceutical corporations to delay cheaper versions of costly biologic drugs. And the copyright experts have argued that it locks in copyright monopolies for global media and IT companies which criminalise copyright breaches and restrict future governments from responding to consumer rights and changing technologies. The Productivity Commission and the ACCC have condemned these extensions of monopolies under the guise of free trade. Well, I don't know about you listeners, but uh, I, I think... The last half of my lifetime, I've been told there's free trade and what I see have been monopolies, uh, world, world market monopolies imposed on my society. But think of the full, uh, full implications of this for educational curricula. And I think it's the Pearson Company that are determining what our children are actually going to be learning on their computers, of course, in our schools and what will be available to our children uh, in the future in the knowledge market, what they call the knowledge market. Is knowledge free? Is knowledge power? What is, you know, what is the future here? Now, there's been strong popular opposition to the TPP in the United States and it's resulted in both the Democrat and the Republican presidential candidates condemning it. So here's something that Trump and Sanders have got in common, believe it or not. The key Congress members have predicted that Congress will not vote on the TPP implementing legislation until after the presidential elections in November and they will seek further concessions from other governments through what is known as the certification process. And this enables the United States Congress to vet other countries implementing legislation to see if it meets the United States' interests. So this looks to me, listeners, as if um, it might be dead in the water in Australia. Let's hope so. If not, the United States demands that the legislation be changed before the final ratification. And a recent study has revealed how this worked in the United States-Australian Free Trade Agreement in 2004. 
So after the Australian Parliament had passed the implementing legislation and nobody seemed to know what exactly they were implementing in our Parliament, by the way, the United States government demanded further changes to copyright law in November 2004 when the two governments were about to exchange formal letters for the ratification of the agreement, saying that the agreement would not be ratified without the changes. And what happened in Australia in 2004? The Howard government gave in to the United States monopolies and their blackmail, and he agreed to push through additional legislation. So are we just uh, the, the, the tail of the United States dog? It would be foolish, uh, Ranald argues, for the Australian Parliament to rush to approving to approve implementing legislation before the United States Congress has done so, because that may then face demands for further concessions. So, here in Australia, we must hold the Senate accountable. They should be looking at all of the potential consequences in these issues and in this TPP and demand independent evaluations of the economic, health, environmental and educational impacts of the TPP to judge if it is in the public interests of the people of this country. And if it's not, our Senate should block any implementing legislation. Now, Dr Rannell's analysis, which I've just read to you, is very useful for those interested in climate change and health issues. But what implications does the TPP have for education? Now, I've referred to a few of these along the way with what we've already seen with corporations that have come in and ruined our TAFE sector because it's, you know, a, a, it is really a national tragedy what has happened there. But what happens if they can do this to our education, our public education system with their charter schools and so on? Uh, the AEU and the New South Wales Teachers Federation have reacted. They've done a bit of thinking about it, as well as the dogs, and they're concerned that the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement will directly affect their members, their teachers, their students and their families. So they're calling on the all ALP Greens and independent MPs to not support the implementing legislation in the absence of independent assessments of the agreement. There's been a letter from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, and uh, Dr Ranald is part of that, um, to non-government MPs, which says that Parliament should not vote on the implementing legislation until an independent assessment has been conducted on the impacts of the trade agreement on education, health and the environment, human rights and labour rights and the economic implications of the agreement because there's concerns already about the extension of medicine and copyright monopolies plus the government's vulnerability to lawsuits from foreign corporations. Uh, and uh, they refer to Pat Reynolds and uh, the Productivity Commission's work in this area. Now, the Australian Education Union, together with the National Tertiary Education Union, uh, last week wrote to the Trade Minister, Andrew Rolfe, expressing concern that the implementation of the TPP will fundamentally limit the capacity of Australian governments to protect and preserve the quality of education in Australia. And AEU Federal President Karina Haythorpe has said that to protect the public interest, it's necessary for Australian governments to be able to legislate without fear of paying compensation to foreign corporations. Heavens above, we haven't got enough money in kitty to educate the children we have, let alone pay multinational corporations that want to get in on the act and then want to take our government to court if they don't get everything that they want. Now, the Australian government does not have the mandate to sign and commit existing and future generations of Australians to these kind of binding legal obligations. So uh, all of that is very interesting. 
And the dogs are very interested in the part that Andrew Robb has played in all of this because, after all, he is the person who has been doing the negotiations, he and members of his department. Um, he's a, uh, a Victorian. Uh, he's a, a member for the Division of Goldstein in the House of Representatives. He's been the Minister for Trade for some time and Investment and he's just announced his retirement from Parliament at the next election. Now, dogs are not certain that history will treat, treat Mr. Rob very as kindly as Mr. Rob might wish. And Robbie is going to read you a very interesting comment from uh, an economist who has his own ideas about this. Over to you, Robbie. Yes, so the economist um, wrote this article starting with the question or titled, What is Andrew Robb trying to hide? The Greens have slammed Trade Minister for attempting to force the Trans-Pacific Partnership through Parliament without a thorough independent examination. Mr. Robb tabled the text of the TPP in Parliament on Tuesday, warning opponents of the deal that Australia had to sign it. Following protocol, Mr. Robbie tabled a national interest analysis of the trade agreement along with the agreement itself, which explained why the deal was in Australia's interest. It was written by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Opponents of the deal have repeatedly asked the government to submit it to an independent analysis before signing it into law. Green spokesman for trade, Peter Wish Wilson, has slammed the national interest analysis as a farce. It is not an independent assessment of the costs and benefits of this agreement. It is simply a more detailed set of talking points coming from DFAT and Andrew Robb's office, Mr. Wish Wilson said. Open quote, unsurprisingly, DFAT and Andrew Robb have marked their own homework and given themselves top marks. If he wasn't so afraid of his spin being shown up as hollow rhetoric, then he would have no problem whatsoever referring the TPP to, be, to the Productive Commission. Close quote. Too right. If Mr. Robb is so certain that the TPP is a good deal for Australia, why is he against having it reviewed by the Productivity Commission? The PC is, after all, the government's key analyst on economic policy matters, so why not use them? As noted last week, the TPP is an incredibly complex agreement whose text numbers sum 6,000 pages and 30 chapters. It is far too complex for the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties to comprehensively review. Therefore, the PC's expert assessment is vital. It's not like time is an issue, either, given member nations have two years to ratify the agreement. The truth is that coalition is against referring the TPP to the PC because it risks uncovering any gremlins lurking in the text. The PC could also determine that the TPP is, in fact, detrimental to Australia's interest, as modelling by the Global Development and Environment Institute at Tufts University has done, which found that employment in Australia would contract by 39,000 jobs. We have seen this story before. While working as the Australian Treasury's trade analyst in 2003 and 4, I have witnessed the government commission the Centre for International Economics to undertake the modelling on the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement, even though the PC was available and wanted the job. It was the belief of many at the time that the CIE was chosen over the PC because it would provide more favorable modeling results, making it easier for the government to sell the deal to the public. By contrast, 
that PC was inherently skeptical of preferential trade agreements for good reason. Unfortunately, the last thing the coalition wants is transparency and accountability, which is why it prefers to use paid consultants to do the analysis of trade deals or refuses to undertake any analysis at all. Many thanks, um, Robbie. Uh, the PC there was the Productivity Commission. Uh, the Productivity Commission has got very real concerns about this and uh, we know quite a bit about the Productivity Commission because one of the persons who does wonderful work for education on the facts and figures is Trevor Cobald and he worked in the, in the uh, Productivity Commission. Uh, I don't know why it is that public service and public servants who are experts are avoided, as we have just heard, by the coalition politicians. They employ their own consultants uh, to give so-called independent reports, and we'll talk about uh, an independent report about private schools and education in a moment. But first, let's switch uh, 3CR. Happy birthday. And Ronnie has chosen the happy birthdays that he likes. That was Happy Birthday 3CR in the style of Malcolm Arland, uh, Arnold, sorry, a la Alan Knott. Uh, and I've got another, uh, another missive or a magnum opus here from another Alan. And I promised this to you last week. Uh, Alan and his friends have a nine-page document in which they indicate their concerns as to what has been happening to public education in this state in the last 30 years. And um, Alan is very concerned about the serious running of our government education system, which in the past gave all children a great fundamental knowledge and allowed many thousands more in recent times to achieve skill through our TAFE sector and our technical schools. And the most beneficial project that could be tackled would be, he believes, for governments to see if there are people among their members who have or really know about skills and for them to set up a task force that would advertise for any skilled people educated in the government technical schools or who knew the details of government technical schools to come forward and help the government to solve today's skill shortage. But his next concern, and we referred to the skills shortage concern last week, their next major concern of the people who have written this paper is the governance of our public education systems. The education departments in the past were noted for giving a great deal of equality to our education systems. And, of course, we hear about inequalities all the time these days. But it was not always so. In 1955, Freeman Butts came to Australia from the United States and pointed out how equal our educational opportunities were in this uh, country. Young people in the country could get an equally good education as those in the city. And why was this? It was because the education departments themselves were singular, one job, and really very powerful authorities that were well funded. And they had strictly top grade, very form formal government, secular teaching training facilities. The teacher training was done by the government authorities or the government school authorities who had over 100 years of experience of what actually worked in the country's classrooms. 
And there was also quite serious checks on the quality of teachers in all of the classrooms and this was centralised and we had inspectors that went out to all of the schools, not just to evaluate the teachers but also to assist the teachers. They still have these inspectors uh, of sorts in the United Kingdom system uh, Her Majesty's ex- inspectors, they're called. But um, we have done away with the inspectors since the 1980s. And um, some people think that this is a great shame. It also means that uh, we have lost a great deal of expertise because the inspectors came up through the schools and were usually ex-principals who understood how the system worked and could help the teachers in the classroom. Now, there were also thousands of government schools nationwide, and there still are, of course, and the government teachers um, were teaching in these and they were very dedicated, as they still are. Um, But there was also a strong formality of supervision of every part of the government school functions and there was a lot of pupil participation. Uh, The writers of this paper argue that we actually can't have disadvantaged schools because the all, all our government schools are, in fact, a government responsibility. If we have disadvantaged schools, then the government is not fulfilling its responsibility. Everybody else, you might notice, is being blamed for the disadvantaged children in our schools and schools which are run down and disadvantaged in their resources. Everybody else excepting the politicians and the minister who is responsible for the well-being of our schools is blamed for this disadvantage. No, we could not and we should not have disadvantaged schools because it is the government's responsibility. Now, we also had exams, according to these people, that ensured very strong results and there was checking of these results and these exams were introduced in the 19th century and came out to Australia from Britain. Uh, They were called public service exams to begin with because, believe it or not, Prince Albert, who was Queen Victoria's consort, had come from Germany where they were very efficient and getting into the public servant wasn't who you know but what you could do. And so the exams were introduced so that those who got the jobs that were available did so on merit. And um, there's too much, of course, in Australia at the moment of who knows who, which school did you go to, and um, not enough on what can you do and what have you passed with an objective uh, evaluation not a NAPLAN test, not an IQ test, just a sensible evaluation process. And the exams always were just meant to show who had qualified. And the HSC did a rather good job of this. Um, The VCAE um, uh, hasn't always done this. This, of course, is a very troubled area, um, how you evaluate children. Now, a skilled central office... Um, tended to all the government education needs um, in those days and there was attendance and care and there was prompt response to all the requests for help from all government teachers and staff. You try and get something out of the education department these days and there's a great deal of buck passing and an awful lot of people who don't know what on earth is going on um, because they have decentralised it out to the regions and so on. It's almost as if nobody is responsible for the education of the children in our schools anymore because there are so many people that can be buck-passed and there is so much spin. Now, there's a full range also, there was, of expert permanent trades and professional personnel on the staff of the departments and they could quickly respond to requirements of all the government teachers, staff, management and legal matters. There was a legal department, there was a history department, um, there was a policy department. I know this because I worked there. There was also um, maintenance and care and if a school needed maintenance, then they got it through the old um, public works department and uh, they didn't have to have a poor 
uh, principal who had to find the right contractor at the right price at the right time or even employ his own teachers. The teachers were centrally um, employed and paid. So all of those components and functions uh, describe the really quite excellent structure, formality and operation that existed, uh, that was um, created in the 19th century and was systematically pulled down after the 1980s with all the talk of privatisation and how private was better than public. Now, the government system in Australia also delivered to the children an excellent complete spectrum of factual, academic and natural knowledge of essential subjects, and there wasn't any sectional bias or outside influence. Um, the importance of subjects was taught in, all, taught in all grades, was carefully selected, and it was perfected over many years by people in the curriculum department. And... Um, People did know what was expected of them and the teachers also knew what was expected of them in the classroom. However, particularly at the secondary area, there was tremendous flexibility for teachers uh, in the curriculum so that they could uh, provide an interesting curriculum for their children who came from different walks, uh, different backgrounds. So uh, these people who have written this paper believe that we should re-centralise our government departments, particularly our government education departments, and go back to uh, the career structures for the people who are in our schools. Uh, next week, I will tell you what they have to say about principles and what has been happening to the principles in our government schools. It's very difficult these days to get anybody to apply to be a principal in a public school because they are expected to be masters of all trade and some of them feel as if they are competent uh, to do almost nothing at the end of the day because where are the resources? If you haven't got the money, uh, what can you do? All of us know that at the end of the day, you need the resources to get the job done. But uh, I think that we have to uh, really give a great big thank you to the headmaster of Glenroy this week, who indicated that the people in our public schools, when they are dealing with children who are disadvantaged, children who have been traumatised, children who are happy in their school, who are going to be dragged out of their school and sent back to a gulag in Nauru, this principal spoke out and said, no, these are my children and these children are happy here and we want them to stay. Uh, so I, I think that really shows you uh, just what is going on in our schools, how our teachers and our principals in our public schools uh, feel for all of the children. All of the children matter because that's what public education is about, all of the children. When a parent goes to a public school, they, their child has the right to have an education in this country. Well, let's have another bit of music and then we'll go into some more, more information for you. Looking for a rumble, yell it 
And the track we just listened to is from the album Arthur the King. And the track is called Tribal Warriors. Well, that was Ronnie and that was his choice and uh, that was Maddie Pryor. Uh, and we're back on the Dogs program. Uh, this is We are here at 12 midday every Saturday. And we have a very interesting uh, information for you. A democratic socialist just won the New Hampshire primary in the United States and everyone is asking what's going on over there. I suspect it's very simple. Bernie Sanders has offered free tertiary education to the young people of America and the people of America, the parents and the students of America they have a reasonably good public education system because as yet, as yet, uh, the, um, the churches haven't uh, completely got rid of the First Amendment of the uh, American Constitution in the way we got rid of Section 116 of our Constitution. But at the tertiary level, they are hit with a debt for the rest of their lives, a very large debt. And this is what the coalition is trying to do to our young people here in Australia. But the young people of America are saying, enough is enough. And Bernie Sanders has come way from behind uh, to give Hillary Clinton a run for her money. It is an unequal contest, given the Clinton machine, but it is a very interesting contest indeed. On the extreme right, of course, we've got Donald Trump and that's a very interesting phenomenon in its own uh, right. But um, I want to get back to Australia and just what is happening in Australia is something very interesting. There's a question as to whether or not money matters in education and the coalition are trying to tell us that it isn't money that matters, it's uh, keeping on top of the teachers, bashing, teacher bashing actually, 
and uh, what is taught in school that matters, that far too much money is going into an Australian education. Well, far too much money is not going into Australian education. It's not going into the right section of Australian education. Far too much money is going into the private sector in education and not into the public sector. And uh, unfortunately, some of the uh, people who are on the side of the public schools don't want to uh, open up the old state aid debate. But the dogs aren't frightened of anything like that, of course. We're quite happy to confront the, the private sector and the religious sector and whichever sector is in opposition to the access to an education as a right, not a charity, uh, not at the behest of a politician or anybody else, but a right for our children to the very best public education that we can afford with public money and public access and public purpose and public accountability. But... um, Uh, Jennifer Buckingham is writing again with the so-called independent studies and they have got out uh, a a, a big report uh, to try to say that everything is okay, that what we have and what we have always had in Australian education right from the moment of settlement is choice. Well, Jennifer Buckingham should actually do her homework on Australian education. Yes, we did have choice, a denominational system, a religious system, for quite a long time in Australian history. But the only educational choice that was available was available until 1848 in private religious schools, schools like King's College uh, in Parramatta. You had to be the right religion, you had to come from the right class, you had to pay the right fees to get into a school at all, with the result that even after the establishment of a national school system in 1848 by 1854, the vast majority of the children of the colony were either not in school or in schools that were a disgrace. The denominational system, the system based on choice, has never done the job. It is a parasitic system. And in Australia, we solved that problem in in the period 1872 to 1880 and we withdrew funding from private religious schools. Now, the dogs have never been against private religious schools. If people want to have a Mercedes rather than a Holden or no car at all, if they want public transport, uh, they have every right to buy their Mercedes. But we say they do not have the right to buy their children out of the public sector. And they do not have the right to tell people that their taxes are not for the common good but for their own private good. That's where the dogs are coming from. But interestingly, and perhaps a little bit sadly, two ex-students wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald um, and argued that the debate about independent schools must move beyond the stereotypes. And Jennifer Buckingham also wrote this. Um, And she has based her research on what uh, I have already argued is a very strange view of Australian educational uh, history and she has also managed to find, now believe it or believe it not, she has managed to find a poor, needy, independent school to put in her statistics. But Chris Bonner from the Save Our Schools group has said that uh, if she can find another one, then he'll bet his money on it and he's quite sure that his money is secure. Now, I'm very interested in Jennifer Buckingham going to so much trouble to rewrite Australian educational history uh, to prove that 
what we have now is what we've always had and everything is fine and we should keep along the way we are going, wasting our public money on so-called independent schools which are dependent now for their very existence on our money but they keep our children out. Um, I'm very interested that she is sensitive at all about disadvantaged and she wants to prove that there are still these poor independent schools because it was this cry of needs and these poor, poor parish schools back in the 1960s that started the uh, funding of these schools at all. And it indicates that if she can only find one and she has to work really, really hard to find one, that the tables are completely turned and any good reason for giving even one cent of public money to these so-called independent schools, it's lost any moral reason at all. We all felt so sorry back in the 60s and I think that um, even the Save Our Schools people still have concerns about what is happening. But I have a very vivid memory of Wyndham, who at that time was the Director General of the New South Wales Education Department, saying to me with tears in his eyes in the 1969 debacle when they gave state aid to private schools, Jean, for the first time in our history, we had the opportunity to bring all of the children together. It would have been so wonderful if back in 1969 we hadn't made that terrible decision. If And it was, um, first of all, the Liberal government and then Gough Whitlam continued uh, with the state aid to boost up schools which divide our children because, remember, dividing and ruling begins at school and that's exactly what our politicians have been doing to us for the last 40, 50 years in this country concerning educational funding. And of course, Alan wanted me to say this, and I'll say it before I go. He wants me to tell those parents who are silly enough to send their children to these so-called independent religious schools that they are very stupid indeed to put their children under such a, a, a regime to allow their children's minds to be filled with the sort of thing that they get in these places and that they would be much better served. Certainly their bank balance would be much better served and their children would be much better served if they all went to public schools which are free for all. And I think that's it for today. And thank you for being with me. Uh, We have made it and uh, hopefully Robert will be back and Dale will be back next week. And of course, before I go, I really would like to thank Robbie, who has so kindly uh, stepped in to panel for me today. And uh, all I can say is, bye for now. People get ready. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition calls on both federal and state governments. These governments must take up proposals to fast-track job creation. They must provide decent unemployment income support payments. They must provide publicly funded training delivered in culturally appropriate ways. And they must provide one-stop mental health support services. Father Bob Maguire will launch the statement on the steps of Parliament House Wednesday, 24th of February from 11am. Bring your friends and stand with Fair Go for Pensioners and with Unemployed Victorians. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition Incorporated is a 3CR supporter. Culture gives our life meaning. Without it, we suffer. This is evident amongst displaced Indigenous communities all around the world. For the past seven years, we've been working with Indigenous people to develop a program that enables communities to utilise their culture as a means to reduce long-term poverty. Right now, we need your help to raise much-needed funding to get this program off the ground. 
Make a tax-deductible donation of $50 and receive an entry ticket to a family-friendly day of live music, food, festivities and a chance to win $2,000 cash. The event will take place on the 5th of March at the foothills of the Mount Macedon Ranges. You have an incredible opportunity to help us achieve our goals and impact the future for Indigenous peoples. For more information about this project and to purchase tickets, go to www.asworldsdivide.com. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter.